Welcome to History Sleuth, a podcast exploring the involvement of history and culture in current events. My name is Adelaide, and today I'll be presenting to you the final paper I wrote from my history capstone class. The topic of the class was um, studying the Bible since the Enlightenment, and I focused my paper on biblical interpretations of slavery and race, which is how it connects back to Black History Month. But before we get into that, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Sleuth History to get updates about when I post new episodes, and make sure also to follow History Sleuth on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Black History Month, I'm doing twice as many episodes posting on both Tuesday and Thursday, so make sure you get connected so you don't miss anything. Um, Now, let's jump into my research paper. Also, this will be probably the most well-researched episode of my my podcast I've ever done. All of my sources and things will be in the description, so you can look at all the different things there. And for this one, I'll have a lot more primary sources than I usually do because I did more of a deep dive and analysis into this subject, obviously, since it was for my my final research paper for my history degree. <laughs> so it's much more in depth than a usual podcast episode. Um, but I thought it was really, really interesting. And I um, really enjoyed studying this, this topic. And I think it is very easily applicable um, to today as well and to our focus and study of black history this month and just in general because we don't have to only study black history (laughs) in February. So I titled my paper Contradictory Biblical Interpretations on Slavery and Race. The prayers of both could not be answered. As the United States struggled to reconstruct and come to terms with all the implications of the American system of slavery and the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War, Christians turned to the Bible to try and make sense of things. In speeches, letters, and sermons from politicians, missionaries, preachers, and other Americans, people quoted the Bible, indirectly used phrases and ideas from the Bible, and used Bible-like language to address relevant topics with an added authority. The Bible was not used predominantly by one political party, one region, or one perspective. As Abraham Lincoln stated in his second inaugural address in 1865, quote, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. People on opposite sides of the issue of racism and slavery found justification in the Bible. Writers such as Josiah Priest and Robert Louis Dabney referred to passages in Genesis they found supported the validity of enslaving Black Americans, while missionary Sarah Stanley and famous orator Frederick Douglass pointed to specific passages that supported their characterizations of slavery as a demon and a sin. Americans in former Confederate states built movements inspired by the Bible to help them deal with their situations after the Civil War. Some white Americans invented the, quote, lost cause narrative that emphasized the Christ-like sacrifice of Confederate soldiers. And some black Americans began to move north in what was called, quote, the Great Exodus, in hope of a better, less oppressive life. Abraham Lincoln stayed in the middle of it all during his life and presidency, not taking a firm stance for slavery or against white supremacy, but he too pulled on the Bible to add authority to his perspective. Lincoln was assassinated shortly after the Reconstruction era um, began, and that era lasted from about 1863 to 1877. But Lincoln's speeches and writings continued to have an influence in how Americans interpreted the Bible to understand this new reality. His observation in his second inaugural address that the prayers of both Southerners and Northerners have not been answered fully continues to be true throughout and after the Reconstruction. Black Americans seeking equality, white supremacists wanting to maintain their status, and the varied ideas of the individuals between those extremes can't claim the Bible for themselves alone. Lincoln's writings and speeches point that he was somewhere in between. Though he did work to emancipate enslaved Americans, he was also clear about maintaining a hierarchy with white Americans over black Americans. His second inaugural address continued by saying that neither side's prayers had been answered because, quote, the Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of the offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. 
by saying the Almighty. Lincoln is referring to God, which he does quite often throughout his writings. And then he quotes Matthew 18.7 in the King James Version to differentiate between the unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances the country has faced and the negative choices that some parts of the country has made. By using a verse from the Bible to do this, Lincoln leads Americans to look to an authority outside themselves and above him to understand what they're facing. Throughout the speech, Lincoln continues to speak using the language of faith and the Bible. He says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must still be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible-like language at the beginning of this quote keeps Lincoln's focus on faith consistent from each point where he quotes a verse. This style of speaking makes it harder to disentangle Lincoln's words and perspectives um, from biblical words and ideas, which is likely intentional. Lincoln ends here with quoting another Bible verse, Psalm 19.9 in the King James Version, to suggest that the outcome of the Civil War was part of God's judgment on America. Lincoln makes a point to use scripture because it gives his conclusions about America a stronger authority than he, is, than he already has as president. Um, he doesn't speak on specific consequences of the Civil War that the country now has to deal with, readmitting states into the Union, providing for formerly enslaved people, rebuilding society without the institution of slavery, but he leaves the listener to draw their own conclusions based on his interpretation of the Bible. However, there were conflicting interpretations that already existed and influenced Americans' understanding, including an interpretation that declared slavery was ordained and justified by God. Josiah Priest lived and died before the Civil War, but his wildly racist and speculative ideas persisted after him. His writings justified the domination of white Americans over Native Americans and enslaved people. And though he didn't have much education himself, he attempted to portray himself as an authority on history and science. He was considered incredibly racist even by his contemporaries, but unfortunately his work gained enough prominence to support justification for the Trail of Tears and of Slavery. His work, Slavery as it Relates to the Negro, written in 1843, suggests that the Bible justified the enslavement of black Americans. According to Priest, quote, the appointment of this race of men to servitude and slavery was a judicial act of God, or in other words, was a divine judgment, end quote. The only actual passage he used from the Bible um, was a story often quoted by white supremacists about the curse of Ham. This is in Genesis 9.25, which in the King James Version says, And Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. White supremacists like priests suggest without much evidence that all black people are descendants from Ham slash Canaan, who was cursed by his father Noah to forever be a slave. Along with this narrative, other pro-slavery leaders employ the language of religious freedom because this principle carried significant cultural value. In doing so, they solidified or even forged their own view of slavery as a central religious concern. Once it became a religious concern by invoking the power and authority of the Bible, these leaders argued that abolitionists were distorting the Bible and threatening the Christian social order of the South. Such extremists, they argued, had no right to impose their own distorted and dangerous orthodoxy on everyone else. The pro-slavery argument, which when appearing to be supported by the Bible, then expanded to an argument um, to maintain the status quo of the South and to maintain Christianity itself. This line of thinking was encouraging to slave owners before and during the Civil War, allowing them to believe that their position as master was justified and supported by God. But after the 13th Amendment was ratified and slavery abolished in 1865, the ideas of white supremacy needed further development. Robert Louis Dabney, a prominent Southern preacher, chaplain in the Confederate Army, and biographer of General Stonewall Jackson, believed that slavery was biblically supported and wrote extensively about it even after the 13th Amendment was passed. 
He was an influential leader to Southern Presbyterianism and his conservative ideas, especially his argument against the expansion of public education in the South, remains somewhat respected today, though the denomination has denounced his ideas on race and slavery. In his book, In Defense of Virginia and Through Her of the South, published in 1867, Dabney states that the task of self-defense of the biblical support of slavery is not entirely discouraging. Our best hope is in the fact that the cause of our defense is the cause of God's word and of its exp- of its supreme authority over the human conscience. Dabney strongly believed that the Bible was on his side on the subject of slavery and that abolitionists were not only wrong, but their messages were, quote, clearly of rationalistic origin, of infidel tendency, and only sustained by reckless and licentious pervasions of the meaning of the sacred text. Dabney believed that history would be on his side, that, quote, in the end it will become apparent to the world not only the conviction of the wickedness of slaveholding was drawn wholly from sources foreign to the Bible, that it is a legitimate corollary from that fantastic, atheistic, and radical theory of human rights. He writes more confidently about the support of the Bible than he gives evidence for its support, however, and his work is clearly using the Bible to support beliefs he already holds rather than come to a conclusion based on scripture. Dabney begins his biblically-based argument by referencing the same story that Priest used in slavery as it relates to the Negro 20 years previously, the curse of Ham. He recognizes that this is not a very good excuse for slavery and observes that, quote, this logic the abolitionists have, of course, delighted to expose. He admits that there is some difficulty in tracing the lineage of present Africans to Ham, but continues to argue that in this passage, quote, God has authorized domestic slavery, so it cannot necessarily be a sin in itself. Dabney's work continues to focus not on any particular passage, but various biblical characters that enslaved people, such as Abraham and Isaac, mentions of slavery in the laws of Moses, and other very specific details in the Bible. Dabney's argument for not using any passage in particular to justify slavery is that, quote, the mere absence of a condemnation of slaveholding in the Old and New Testament is proof that it is not unlawful, and that the burden of proof for evidence of the unlawfulness of slavery is on the abolitionists. Dabney's argument seems to work better to prove that slavery existed in the Bible rather than that American slavery was supported by the Bible, and though throughout his work he demonstrates his extensive knowledge of the Bible as well as Greek and Hebrew, he gives very little evidence of the Bible's actual support of slavery, other than reiterating that slavery existed and the Bible didn't specifically condemn it. After the conclusion of the Civil War, former Confederate states had to come to terms with their loss and what it meant for Southern culture, especially since Christianity was interwoven into that culture. Some Southerners began to form a particular way of conveying that history of the Civil War that is now called the Lost Cause, a pseudo-historical narrative that essentially claims the South fought nobly and against all odds not to preserve slavery, but entirely for other reasons, such as the rights of states to govern themselves, and that Southerners were forced to defend themselves against Northern aggression. The Lost Cause took on religion-like qualities with identifiable mythology, ritual, and organization, and drew heavily on biblical traditions and rituals as it grew in popularity in the late 1890s and into the 20th century. Scholars describe the lost cause as a cult of the dead because of the ritualistic way in which they honored, built statues of, and talked about their Confederate heroes. Because they had lost what they considered to be a holy war, Southerners had to face suffering, doubt, guilt, a recognition of what seemed to be evil triumphant, and above all, death. The language and activities of the lost cause helped them to overcome their existential worries because their arguments for secession and slavery had leaned on the Bible and their church authorities, so the loss of the war implied a kind of threat to those authorities. An important force in driving the lost cause pseudo-history was the organizational efforts of white Southern women. Women from Columbus traveled to soldiers' graves annually after the end of the Civil War for a Confederate Memorial Day and compared their work to that of Mary Magdalene and the other women who came to Christ's grave. The ritualist nature of the lost cause made it a kind of civil religion, but it was always explicitly tied to Christianity. In this comparison, the Southern women are like the faithful followers of Christ, which makes the dead Confederate soldiers Christ. 
This is a bold but not unique image used in the Lost Cause narrative, and it was not seen as sacrilegious to them. The organization, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is still active today, was especially influential in pushing the Lost Cause. Religion saturated the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and these women provided an unmatched crusading zeal to the religion of the Lost Cause by taking an especially aggressive role in preserving the records of the Southern past. One member, Cornelia Branch Stone, wrote a pamphlet in 1912 on the Lost Cause version of history titled an AUDC Catechism for Children, which not only gave the contents a sacred quality but also connected it to other Christian ritualistic practices. Stone's catechism contained 63 questions with answers for the children to memorize and touched on all the elements of the Lost Cause. It stated that the Civil War was caused by the disregard of the North for the rights of the Southern slaveholding states, that slaves were actually treated with great kindness and care in nearly all cases, and that the enslaved people were faithfully devoted to their masters, all of which are factually incorrect. The Catechism ends with reaffirming the purpose of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is, quote, to teach their children from generation to generation that there was no stain upon the action of their forefathers in the war between the states, and the women of the South, who notably sustained them in that struggle, will ever feel that their deathless deeds of valor are a precious heritage to be treasured for all time to come. The civil religion of the lost cause and the efforts of organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy aimed to aimed not to teach either history or Christianity, but to combine both to convey the idea of the tragic heroism of the Confederacy. Like others who've written and spoken on this topic, the lost cause sought power and authority from the Bible and by using Bible-like language. It also goes a step further than others in including Bible-like rituals as well. Curiously, the false narrative of the lost cause persists to the present day. Currently on the United Daughters of the Confederacy website, the organization condemns white supremacy, but also disagrees with motions to take down a number of Confederate monuments that still stand. Also in the former Confederate states, black churches began to grow with the end of slavery. Northern churches sent missionaries to the southern states, where churches were growing rapidly. Unique from the predominantly white churches, black churches were very involved in politics and political activism, and their leaders often spoke on these topics. Missionary Sarah G. Stanley was a light-skinned biracial woman who worked to educate newly freed Black Americans in Southern states. She spent most of her life dedicated to the cause of abolitionism and civil rights for Black Americans and published various books and essays on these topics that incorporated her Christian faith. In 1856, she wrote on behalf of the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Delaware, her most famous speech titled To the Convention of Disenfranchised Citizens in Ohio, which was read by Delegate William Harris because as a woman, she was not allowed to directly address the citizens. In this speech, she addressed religion and racism using Christian concepts and Bible-like language. She said, Let American religion teach adoration to the demon slavery, whom it denominates God. At the end, the book of record will show its falsity or truth. Let scientific research produce elaborate expositions of the inferiority and mental idiosyncrasy of the colored race. One truth, the only essential truth, is incontrovertible. The omnipotent, omniscient God's glorious autograph, the seal of the angels, is written on our brows. That immortal characteristic of divinity, the rational, mysterious, and inexplicable soul, animates our frames. Stanley first calls attention to the way that religion and science work to support the institution of slavery and the inf inferiority of black Americans, but she trusts that the book of record will have the final word about slavery, and that one truth, the only essential truth, incontrovertible, will work against the kind of science that suggested black people were biologically inferior to white people. The language that Stanley uses at the end of this quote is Bible-like and reflects the idea that people are made in the image of God and also that they are part of God's elect, that they have the right teaching rather than the false teaching, and that they are part of God's plan. This is a sharp difference from the interpretations of Bible passages from people like Josiah Priest. 
The language and concepts in the Bible that Stanley pulls from are in Revelation 9.4 and 2 Timothy 2.19, both of which reference the seal of God to mark who belongs to God and who does not. Stanley's use of this language communicates to her audience that even though other interpretations of the Bible says otherwise, they too belong to God. The biblical story of the Israelites' escape from enslavement by the Egyptians, the Exodus, was a powerful image for enslaved black Americans before the Civil War and remained an evocative image after the Civil War, inspiring spirituals and the great Exodus. The praise song, Go Down to Moses, was a popular slave song throughout the South that used imagery from the book of Exodus to express a desire for freedom. The spiritual pulls from the verse Exodus 8.1 in the King James Version, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Some of the lyrics of the song are, Go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. The purpose of this song was for the listener or singer to connect with the story of the enslavement of the Israelites and find hope in that God worked to set them free from their oppression. Enslaved black Americans were easily able to identify with the Israelites in this situation and saw the slave owners and southern leaders to be like Egypt. This connection would be challenging to white Americans who saw themselves as Israel, so their interpretation of these passages would be in direct conflict with black Americans. Unfortunately, once slavery and reconstruction ended, the oppression of black Americans continued. Black Americans continued to find solace in the story of the Israelites' exodus and used those verses as an encouragement and political statement. Almost immediately after the end of Reconstruction, violence against black Americans increased, and some began to feel that leaving the South forever was their only real chance to begin new lives. Large groups migrated from southern states and into Kansas in what was called the Great Exodus and the participants' exodusters, in search of a better, safer life. The rise in population of Kansas was sharp. In 1855, only 151 free blacks and 192 enslaved African Americans were counted living in the territory. By the 1870 census, 17,108 black people were living in the state. And in 1880, the number of African Americans in Kansas had grown to 43,107. This movement took on a biblical quality, directly comparing the journey of the Exodusters to that of the Israelites from Egypt. By connecting this migration with a story from the Bible, leaders were able to add authority to their decision to move and claim that God was on their side rather than the side of the people who oppressed them. They were also easily able to communicate to white Americans the reason for their migration by invoking a story that they too were familiar with if they usually identified themselves with Israel rather than Egypt. Congressional representatives of southern states had their suspicions that the great exodus was politically motivated or that black Americans had been enticed to northern states in some illegal manner. Senators William Wyndham, a Republican from Minnesota, and Henry W. Blair, a Republican from New Hampshire, officially investigated a specific instance of this migration, where, quote, in the month of December last, a few hundred colored men, women, and children, discontented with their condition in North Carolina and hoping to improve it, were emigrating to Indiana. Wyndham writes, to recognize that this instance, quote, though utterly insignificant in comparison with the vastly greater numbers which were moving from other southern states into Kansas, quote, Democrat leaders in the South had a narrow view of what could be causing this movement and wanted clearer answers. Wyndham's report found that the cause of the movement was what he expected, that, quote, thousands of colored people, unable longer to endure the intolerable hardships, injustice, and suffering inflicted upon them by a class of Democrats in the South, had, in utter despair, fled panic-stricken from their homes and sought protection among strangers in a strange land. Wyndham's report validated what migrating Americans had already expressed in calling their movement the Great Exodus, that black citizens were still being oppressed even after the abolition of slavery. Wyndham spoke to various leaders of the Great Exodus, including an elderly man named Benjamin Papp Singleton. Singleton was enslaved for 37 years in Tennessee before the Civil War, escaped to freedom in the North, and then participated in the Underground Railroad before he became one of the most prominent leaders of the Great Exodus. 
An older man at the time of the Great Exodus, Singleton was considered by some a Black Moses, or the father of the Exodester movement, and his extensive life experiences of enslavement in the South and escaping the South convinced him that the only way for Black Americans to have better, safer lives would be to leave the South. Wyndham writes, quote, The old man spoke in the most touching manner of the sufferings and wrongs of the people, of his people in the South, and in the most glowing terms of their condition in their new homes. Singleton was seen as a Moses-like figure because of his leadership role and organization of the migration taking his people to the promised land, an extension of the connection the Exodusters made between the biblical story and their own experience. Kansas was chosen to be the promised land for most Exodusters because the state was famous for John Brown and its struggle historically against slavery. From 1877 to 1879, Singleton led around 300 black Americans to Kansas, and on April 5, 1880, he testified before a committee in Congress about the movement. In this testimony, the committee members seemed mostly concerned with stopping the great exodus than the reasoning for it. A senator asked Singleton, quote, You believe, then, there is no way to stop the exodus except by stopping the abuse of these people and by treating them fairly? To which Singleton responded, That confidence is perished and faded away. They have been lied to every year. Migration was one strategy for dealing with the continued oppression, but it was not the most widely supported. One famous dissenter of the Great Exodus was Frederick Douglass, who also leaned heavily on the Bible as his authority, but was looking for a more radical change for the livelihoods of black Americans, rather than just a geographical one. Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave and grew up into freedom, was famous for his speeches and his support of abolition. In one of his most striking speeches, what to the slave is the 4th of July, given in 1852, Douglas incorporated Bible verses seamlessly into communicating his sorrow and his condemnation of the American church. Douglas began, Fellow citizens, above your national, tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions, whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do not forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Douglas contrasted the pain of slavery with the celebration of independence and incorporated Psalm 137.5, a psalm about the difficulty the Israelites faced worshiping their God while exiled. This whole psalm, subtly marked by Douglas without even a reference, compares the experience of the slave in America with the Israelites, the protagonists of the Bible, and according to it, God's chosen people. By doing so, he elevated the position of enslaved people, not just in recognizing their humanity by choosing to empathize with them, but using the language and the imagery of the Bible to convey their suffering, which was also done by the Exodusters and their migration years later. Douglas does not consider for a moment that American slavery is supported by the Bible. He denounces slavery in strong language that ties in religion and the Bible. Quote, standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce, with all the emphasis I can command, everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. For Douglas, slavery is against everything good and humane. He boldly declares that God is with the crushed and bleeding slave, and that the Bible not only is not only disregarded but trampled on by this great sin of America. Though his statements might not be considered so shocking by people today, Douglas was contemporaries with avid slavery defenders who did use the Bible to, to explain their racism, and by simply claiming God to be on his side instead of theirs, Douglas easily undoes all of their arguments. Douglas then addressed the Fugitive Slave Law, a law passed in 1850 that required people escaping enslavement to be returned to those who had enslaved them upon capture, even if they were captured in a free state, and the lack of response to it from most churches. He says, The fact that the church of our country does not esteem the Fugitive Slave Law as a declaration of war against religious liberty implies that the church regards religion simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony. 
a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and who enjoin obedience to a law forbidding these acts of mercy is a curse, not a blessing to mankind. The Bible addresses all such persons as scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites who pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. In this quote, Douglas uses both direct quotes from the Bible and allusions to passages that would have been familiar to his audience. He finishes this thought by quoting Matthew 23, 23, a passage where Jesus condemns the religious leaders for neglecting significant portions of the law and allowing people to be oppressed and abused, much like how the majority of the American church did not stand up against slavery or the fugitive slave law. Douglas also alludes to Isaiah 58.7 by describing people who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked. This chapter of Isaiah criticizes the people of Israel for worshiping and fasting without obeying God and working for justice and righteousness and caring for the oppressed and the needy. Both of these passages are clear illustrations of how Douglas sees the American church and the criticisms he has for it and aligns himself with God and the authority of the Bible. Douglas then ends his speech by quoting a longer passage from Isaiah um, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, that further emphasize the disconnect between the worship of the people and the injustices they allow around them. Douglas's final words summar- summarize his strong arguments and bring in one last verse from the Bible. He says, Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. Douglas has the authority to declare that his audience that his audience's Christianity is a lie because he has throughout his speech used quotes from the Bible to support his own argument and give himself the authority. Because he has rhetorically proved that the actions of the people are against what is in the Bible and used specific passages that condemn their specific actions, Douglas has been leading up to this point and it is well supported. Douglas uses biblical passages the most powerfully out of various aforementioned writers and his final point is the most explosive even 170 years later. The Bible doesn't state directly that American slavery was a sin or white supremacy was justified, which allows for opposing opposing perspectives and interpretations to form. Christians in the United States today are still struggling to come to terms with the implications of American history and how to understand the Bible within the context of racism and other issues that still plague our nation. Even though more today agree with Douglas rather than Dabney, there are still those that find biblical justification for their antagonism towards others. However, in the words of Frederick Douglass, notwithstanding the dark picture, I have this day presented of the state of the nation. I do not despair of this country. I leave off, therefore, where I began, with hope. So that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for sleuthing with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The featured Black History podcast of this episode is Black History Lessons. Definitely check them out to learn more about Black History and get more details on subjects I've only briefly mentioned. I'll put a link to this podcast in my description, as well as the other sources that I used for this episode. Um, And all right, I will catch you guys next time when we'll talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Don't forget to follow History Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. And rate and review when you can. I hope you have a great day. Bye.